Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. Matthew Rowley, author of Trump and the Protestant Reaction to Make America Great Again, just published in 2021 by Rutledge. Dr. Rowley's timely and accessible book is something of a study in partisan historiography, as he examines three different approaches to history within American Protestantism in response to the candidacy, presidency, and legacy of Donald Trump. It's a pleasure to have you, Matt. Congratulations on the new book, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. We're eager to hear more about what you've written, but first, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this project. Sure. Uh, So I started out um, in biblical studies and did a Master's of Divinity and Master of Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. And it was there that I really got interested in the issue of history and the imitation of biblical violence. And so I worked on uh, how people construct the view that their side is righteous in any given conflict. So from there, I, I moved on to the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom, where I worked on Protestantism and warfare, looking in particular at the history of Puritan violence in the Atlantic world. So that was looking at uh, the theology of Puritan warfare as they fought against fellow Anglicans, Scottish Presbyterians, Irish Catholics, and Native Americans. And I was looking in particular at how their theology uh, bends and sways under the pressure of politics. So you can see certain themes within their theology emerging in peacetime and then other themes in war, but also looking at how their theology itself changes depending on who they're fighting against. So uh, I finished that in 2018, and uh, I've been working on some other projects since then. Um, But I never intended to write a book on Donald Trump. I intended to just give about a 20-minute lecture on how Protestants um, interpreted history either to support or oppose him. And initially, my thought was simply that the the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims arriving at Plymouth will coincide, or it did coincide a few few months ago, with the uh, re-election campaign of Donald Trump. So I was looking at those two events together and simply thought that it would be Uh, an interesting topic to give a short lecture on and uh, became really engrossed in it and and found that there really are three competing and in some ways incompatible ways that American Protestants view their own history and Mm -hmm. was putting the final touches of this um, as, as the debate about history really boiled over after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And so really trying to understand what are the larger and longer uh, narratives that American Protestants are telling themselves about the past, and and how does this contribute to the polarization that we see in the present? 
Well, well, thanks, Matt. That's really interesting. So you've said that this study seeks to understand three different ways that Americans, particularly Protestant Christian leaders, look at the history of colonial America. So could you for a moment sketch out some of these alternatives, and then we'll talk about each one of them in a moment. Sure. The the three groups that I'm roughly um, looking at, I, I, I restricted myself to Protestants who wrote books during the Trump presidency. So I didn't go into the blogosphere, didn't go into, you know, all of, all of the other possible um, sources of information. I, I, I looked stri- strictly at books and I was looking particularly at how do they respond to make America great again? Uh, so the, hmm. the final word of Trump's slogan is fundamentally a historical claim. Uh, so we see in it, he, uh, Trump really is wrapping a statement about national decline around a vision of progress. So he's trying at the same time to say, you know, it was, it was the best of times, or it will be the best of times, and, it, and it's currently the worst of times. And he's trying to to restore something, but there's fundamental disagreement over what it is that Trump is aiming to restore. And mm. so I, I argue that some Protestants have what I've called the inclusive interpretation of Make America Great Again. And that inclusive interpretation is, is essentially Make America Great Again for All Americans. And so we see that some Americans think that MAGA is a very inclusive claim. And on the other side, there's the exclusive interpretation of MAGA. And, and that is make America great again for white Christian males. And we see that some people, uh, particularly those who are white Christian nationalists, tend to argue for that. But then you also see the Protestant left who, who really fundamentally disagrees with, with Trump. They similarly argue that that Trump is trying to restore American greatness only for uh, white Christian males. And so looking at, you know, Trump basically sparked this massive debate about history through his slogan and through the different things that he's advocated over the last four years. And I divided the Protestant response to Trump into three different groups. The first is make America great again, Protestants. And then uh, these Protestants fundamentally want to take America back to what made it great between 1620 and 1950. And we can talk a little bit more about each of these groups uh, later. But so make America great again, Protestants want to restore uh, what made America great between 1920 and 1950. Make America lament Protestants fundamentally want Americans to come to terms with their history of racism, sexism, and exploitation. Uh, so when they when these Protestants hear the call to make America great again, they they want to say America was never great, and therefore we we shouldn't be trying to restore some kind of mythical greatness. What we should do is confront our past so that we can make America great for the first time for everybody. Um, the third group of Protestants I've called Make America Better, and these Protestants. Actually, they, they tend to take on board all of the critiques of the Make America Lament position. So they, they think it is valuable, it's, it's useful, it, it's necessary to focus on the racism and the sexism and exploitation that are inseparable from America's past. But they go one step beyond that. 
and they they move on to actually appreciate America's past. Um, flawed individuals, flawed documents, flawed institutions, um, though they be in the past, they the Make America Better Protestants can't say America was ever great, but they can agree that we can use the past, use what is best in the past in order to move America towards confronting racism, sexism, and exploitation in the present. Um, so the first two positions are largely um, incompatible. And I argue throughout that they only, em- they only emphasize one part of, the, of, of America's history, and therefore they're not really able to have much of a dialogue. And I put forward the Make America Better position as more faithful to the complexity of America's past and uh, able to bridge, uh, bridge the divide so that the pursuit of justice in the present can be a bipartisan uh, effort. That's really fascinating, Matt. I'm especially interested with the way that you're talking about this inclusive, exclusive interpretation of MAGA as not necessarily um, a partisan or polarized phenomenon, but it actually can can kind of cut both ways before you then move it into those three different ideologies that you're describing. Is that Am, am I hearing that correct? Yes. And, and I think recognizing the divisive skill that Donald Trump has. Um, so one, uh, one author described him as having the Moses touch, being able to de- plant his stake in the ground anywhere and divide the sea before him. And <laughs> I, I think we want to often think that the divides are, are very clear, but he has actually divided Americans in so many interesting ways. I mean, even just looking at the 2020 election, with his percentage of votes among minorities increasing during that time. Um, you know, that's the exact opposite of what you would expect, but he's really divided. He, he has absolutely divided our nation, but it's been anything but clear divides. It cuts through denominations. It cuts through racial groups. Um, it cuts through genders. And, and so, um, so I, I was kind of trying to explore those complexities. Yeah. Matt, I was really intrigued by the end of this kind of introductory section of your book. You you make a comment about your empathetic approach. So before we get into these different groups, what are the cost-benefit ratios of careful reading of each different position? What are the rewards or the dangers? Are you meaning to to equivocate these two these these different options, or um, is there something different that you're after? Yes. So perhaps I'll jump back into 17th century history, something you and I are both familiar with. Um, I studied massacres for my PhD, and I was never satisfied with my analysis until I could imagine myself doing similar things if I was in those circumstances. And so I used empathy throughout the PhD to try to as best as I possibly could, recreate the thought processes of those that I was studying. And so when I apply that to modern history, um, we're often told that, that empathy shuts down critique. And I want to say that empathy is the place where, where good critique starts. You can only truly critique after you have empathized with a position. And so what I try to do throughout is, is say, as best as I can, get into the head 
of somebody who believes that Donald Trump is their protector and believes that th- that his vision for America is best. And I wasn't satisfied with my analysis of a Trump supporter until I could see myself acting, thinking, speaking as they did. And then I flipped around and tried to represent, uh, tried to you know, look at the people who are uh, viscerally uh, opposed to President Trump and look at their thought processes and empathize as much as I can. And, and often, you know, often you run into limits with a lot of these things because so much of the opposition to Trump is based on, on things like racism and sexism. And as a white male, um, it, it can be very hard for me to feel those things, but I've tried my best to listen to what, uh, what made people so fearful of the slogan, make America great again. And what made them so fearful of, uh, of this vision of restoring American greatness. And then I tried to put that into, into words. Um, and so I, I think that one of the fundamental things we need to do is in America is reframe empathy so that it becomes it becomes a tool of critique, not the opposite of critique. Yeah, Matt, I thought that was really insightful. You made the comment that in trying to empathize with different sides of this conversation, you're not necessarily trying to engage in the good people on both sides kind of argumentation, but instead that people on different sides of this debate feel like they have really good reasons for holding their beliefs. So let's get into this first group. This is the Make America Great Again crowd. Who are some of the key leaders within American Protestantism? How are they reading American history? And what kind of continuities are they seeking to highlight? So in the first group, Make America Great Again, I was I was um, looking at a whole bunch of authors and pastors and uh, journalists. And the, the authors that I settled on were Robert Jeffress, Cal Thomas, Os Guinness, Eric Metaxas, Michael Brown, and a whole cadre of what I've called prophecy or prophecy experts. Hmm. And these Protestants carry around a burden of memories containing court cases that marginalize God and Christian ethics in the public square. So they, they, they feel very burdened by American history. And this often has to do with the courts. They argue that America turned from its founding, most notably in the 1950s, and restoring American greatness, therefore, involves recovering what made America great between the 1920s and the 1950s. These Protestants believe that opponents of American greatness denigrate a noble and uplifting past. The left, they think, runs through American history with chisel and axe, toppling anything that falls short of their liberal platform. So they very much position themselves as, um, as defenders of sanity defenders of American history, defenders of, um, of, of godliness in the public sphere. Um, and so they, they don't want to necessarily restore the world to the state that it was in 1950. Um, but what they want to do is, in essence, bring back the best parts of it. And the best in, in their perspective is often, often has to do with the way that uh, the church was uh, the church's relationship with the state and with law. Um, they so how did these Protestants in the Make America Great Again group how do they deal with America's history of racism, sexism, and exploitation? 
what I found is that pretty much all of them acknowledge these negative aspects of America's past, which actually surprised me. But what they do is they usually only devote about one paragraph of their book to looking at the sins of America. They, they tend to, you know, they, they say America was great. Oh, yeah. And there was this thing called slavery. But we outgrew that. And so they, they acknowledge the past, but almost in a way that dismisses the, the deep hurt. And in dismissing the hurt, they also cut off the past from the present. So they, they almost want to uh, segregate something like slavery in the past and say, you know, the racism that produced slavery is in the past, but it ended and it doesn't continue to impact the present. There is no systemic problem with racism in the present. Um, so they're very much wanting to just restore the good and they almost quarantine the negative aspects of America's past. So in the present, these Protestants argue that America needs to admire the individuals, ideas, and events that made America great, and then Americans will be moved to greatness. Uh, perhaps the best articulation of this was, was Trump's 2020 Mount Rushmore speech, uh, where he hmm. is arguing that um, by focusing on the negative in America's past, Americans themselves will become harsh, judgmental, unforgiving, and self-righteous. But by, our, by focusing on the good, Americans will be moved to goodness. And this is essentially Norman Vincent Peale's power of positive thinking applied to history. So you, you almost create the great American history by telling yourself that American history is great. Other Protestants, as we'll discuss, feel like this, um, this is a very harmful way of viewing America's past that allows injustices in the present to go unchallenged. That's really interesting, Matt. I'm curious if if you think that there might be, because we're primarily focusing here in this discussion on Christian leaders, pastors, and, and journalists, what sort of theological underpinnings might be giving the foundation for this particular kind of a Christian approach to history? You've started to allude to this a little bit with your reference to the work of Norman Vincent Peale. But how might this be an outworking of a certain way of approaching Christian theology? Yeah, I think related to Norman Vincent Peale's book, if you read it, um, confession doesn't play a big role. Focusing on failure doesn't play a big role in that. And, and that's a very common thing. So in, in the same way that a lot of Protestants who support Trump are willing to basically... They, I would I would say that they have an overactive forgiveness complex. Hmm. And that applies both to America's past and to America's present. So forgiveness is a good thing. But forgiveness can operate within your thinking in a way that shuts off the ability to empathize with people who are hurting, the ability to see things from other people's perspectives or the ability to confront wrongs. And so you, you see with Donald Trump, there has been a continual, um, a continual lack of a willingness among many Protestants to confront either his past or the, the statements or policies that he's had in the present, precisely because they, they talk about how forgiving God is. And 
I would say that that's an overactive sort of forgiveness that cuts off critical thinking in a lot of ways. And that, that same kind of forgiveness is often applied to the past. So, you know, the, the past, yes, we know the bad stuff happened, um, you know, 50 years ago, a uh, century ago, two centuries ago. We know that stuff happened. But what we need to do is essentially look over it, have grace for the past and, you know, take what is best and apply it to the present. So I, I would say that's one of the main things that I see going on. Also, I, I think uh, John Fee has talked about uh, fear, power, and nostalgia as as three important factors that are at play here. So evangelicals in particular, he said that you could write the entire history of evangelicalism through the lens of fear. and um, And so this sense of embattlement that has been going on for a very long time of, you know, the Christian against the world and the world is trying to destroy, the world is attacking. Um, Some elements of evangelicalism are incredibly fearful and Trump has come in as, as the, the, um, as the protector, which uh, his second thing, fear, power, nostalgia. And, and my book is very much about the nostalgia part. Yeah. Um, But that in the fearfulness uh, they have reached out for a protector, um, and and Trump represents that for them. That's right. I, I think it's in relation to this group that you talked about gaslighting. What was the the? Um, how are you understanding that term? This is a, a a term that gets thrown around a lot, but I I don't know that we always know exactly what we're talking about when we use it. So, um, but you you acknowledge that that's a, a real concern with this Make America Great Again group. How how is that playing out? Yes. So in part of my trying to empathize as best I can with the Make America Great Again crowd, um, I I float the idea that there's a, a form of gaslighting that goes on. So gaslighting is mental manipulation where you are told that you're not experiencing something you're experiencing. And the most common way in which gaslighting occurs is in racial discourse. So somebody has clearly experienced racism. And then they're told, oh, you're not experiencing racism. And so the person is almost made to doubt that they had just experienced something that was racist. Uh, So I I take the, you know, I I apply this idea of gaslighting to what is going on with, um, with Protestants who supported Trump. So in essence, you, you look at various places in America and uh, various white communities in America, and the unemployment is incredibly high. Drug addiction is is very high. Um, you know, people have have left them, forgotten them. Their uh, their their healthcare is very low. Uh, education levels are low, and they're in essence told that you have white privilege. And and they're saying, I don't feel any of this privilege. I don't feel any of this. But you're, you're, you know, basically we're the forgotten Americans and you're making me feel guilty about my skin color. You're making me feel as if I have some advantages because of my, my skin color. Where are the advantages? Um, and so that's the first form of gaslighting that I, that I talk about. The second form is... Um, the second form has to do with how quickly the country is changing. And 
people on the left will say they will they will um, they'll applaud how quickly the country's changing. So uh, the country, you know, look look at the, look at you know where we were in relation to uh, sexuality at the beginning of Obama's presidency, and then look four years later and four years later, progress, 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 change, 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 and it's put in terms of good. Um, and then at the same time, those same people will turn around to Trump supporters and say, you're changing America. You're fundamentally altering the American landscape. And what that does for the typical Trump supporter is that actually causes them to dig in deeper and say, you know, there was a slippery slope and we should have dug in four decades ago, three decades ago. We should have been all the more adamant on making our faith impact politics um, because now we've seen where it leads to. And so what you see in the present is a doubling down on the sense of embattlement because they're trying to make up for lost ground. Um, and, and they get very frustrated because at the same time, they're being told that they're changing America while the left is saying, yay, we're changing America. And it's this sense of gaslighting, like, you know, you're, you're, you're causing me to doubt what I'm seeing with my own eyes. Fascinating. Well, I'd like to move down to the second group. So you've talked about the make America great again, group of Protestants, now, who are the Make America Lament Protestants, and and what do they mean by that? Sure. In the second category, I'm dealing with authors uh, Sherry Faye Rosendahl, Cornell West, Michael Eric Dyson, Jamar Tisby, Jonathan Walton, Jonathan Wilson Har- Hargrove, Mark Charles, and Soon Chan Ra. Um, and these authors, when they hear the call to make America great again, They want to make America lament. And what they mean by lament is, uh, in one sense, it's looking at the past. Look at the history of racism, sexism, land grabbing, um, and exploitation. Look at that. Feel it deeply. Lament it deeply. And lament for them tends to not be an exclusive thing. I think when we think of you know, when, when you think, oh, somebody wants to make you lament, it's often put in terms of, you know, they want to make you feel bad. They want to make you, um, you know, but that's not the main sense. I, I think that they actually put lament as a very intimate thing. So they, they want to, in essence, invite the white population of America into a funeral, which is which is very, um, it's a very intimate thing. They're trying to invite Americans into the pain of what it means to be marginalized in America. Um, It's often interpreted as, you know, they're trying to create this big division between white people and people of color or, you know, men and women or whatever the fault lines are. But I, I, I honestly think their vision of lament is very much trying to share their pain so that the groups can become closer together. Um, so this group is burdened, as, as I mentioned, the Make America Great Again Protestants are bur- burdened by uh, mainly court cases that they think move the country away from God. 
these Make America Lament Protestants are burdened by injustices that date back to the colonial era, most notably land theft, slavery, and female subordination. They argue vigorously that the past is not in the past, and they cite ongoing injustices in forms that range from voter suppression to the new Jim Crow to police brutality. Present-day gaps in wealth, education, incarceration, health, for example, are directly connected to these injustices. So whereas the previous group will only talk about these injustices in one paragraph, this group wants to almost talk exclusively about these injustices. And they, they want to highlight them and play, place them front and center in America's history. Um, but more than that, they want to argue that the past, that the past is not past. It barges into the present all the time in, in no-knock search warrants. It barges into the present when the police are putting a knee on a person's neck. And so they want to really connect history, connect the past to the present. Instead of you know walling off slavery as the previous group does, they want to say, "Oh no, there is far too much continuity between slavery and the present." Hmm. So when when these Americans hear claims of American greatness, they fear that this den- denies, dismisses, or glorifies America's racist, sexist, land grabbing past, and many of them actually worry that MAGA is a way of turning back the clock on progress. So it's you know, not not trying to restore what is best in America's past, but Trump wants to restore uh, this nostalgic time when, when you know, white male Christianity was dominant. So e- even though these Protestants might admire deeply flawed historical persons in the past, they tend to not say anything nice about them. And I think this is very strategic. I, I think that their fear is that, you know, if they... Cr- Let's take um, George Washington, for example. If they critique George Washington, critique, 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 and then throw on a praise at the end, they're worried that Trump supporters will only hear the praise and huh. will not hear the critique. And so, so these Protestants tend to be um, allergic to saying anything positive about America's past. Um, so the, these are kind of the fault lines. The Make America Great Again is worried about critiquing the past. If you critique the past, you're you're a Marxist. Um, and and the other side is worried about you know about praising the past because if you praise the past, then you won't confront historic injustices that continue to impact the present. How are you seeing this this call to make America lament? emerging out of the the Protestant convictions of this group? I think Protestantism is constantly reevaluating itself. It's one incredibly long argument and often a very diverse argument. Right from the beginning, almost immediately after 1517, it's been a diverse argument. Um, and each generation of Protestants critiques the one before. It's a very natural thing that that happens. Obviously, there's a lot of continuity, a lot of appreciation through the past. But I really I think that the Make America Lament group is is tapping into a very long tradition of minority minority Protestants who 
have critiqued the injustice of the country that they lived in. So you can go, you can go way back um, into the into the 18th century, and you find Native American Protestant ministers and uh, and African American Protestant ministers who are um, who are really holding up a mirror to the nations that they live in and saying, you know, you profess this, you profess that you are a Christ-like society. This is what you are really like. And so I, I think that I think that these Protestants are tapping into that much longer tradition, but they are also they're also very much tapping into the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the entire Hebrew Bible, as uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has said, is one long narrative of national self-critique. Hmm. And so they're very much uh, taking on that prophetic role, not, not prophetic in the sense of, you know, telling the future, but prophetic in the sense, the Hebrew Bible uh, prophetic sense, or one of the senses of, of um, the prophet standing against the nation and pointing out the failures. And they very much adopt that role. Yeah, that's really great, Matt. So you've, you've outlined these two fault lines, as you called it, and then you now present a third group, which you're calling Make America Better. Is this just some kind of Goldilocks mediating position halfway between the two groups? Or are you seeing this mapping in a different way altogether? Yes. So this third group of Protestants, they want to make America better. Uh, they're uncomfortable with claims of national greatness. So when when Trump supporters, you know, have their MAGA flags and, you know, talk about how, how great it was in the past, they will just say that that's not reality. That's not real history, that that America never existed. But they also worry that being imbalanced on the other side, so only critiquing the past, actually cuts you off from the ability to uh, fight against injustice in the present. So their writings emphasize that there has always been two Americas. There was the founding ideal and the founding reality. The reality was unequal and unjust, but the ideal laid the groundwork for justice and equality. In other words, America's enduring racism and the drive for equality flow from the same source. Therefore, these Protestants argue that historical persons, institutions, or documents should not be wholly rejected or totally embraced. So they, they have a very complex view with the past. They, they don't look at Abraham Lincoln and say he was only the great emancipator. They're, they're also willing to say, oh, he was adamantly against uh, intermarriage. He did not want equality with blacks. Um, and, and somehow all of those things coexist in this person of Abraham Lincoln, who is simultaneously admirable and revulsive. Um, and they, they hold those two things in tension. Um, and in, in reference to your Goldilocks question, I argue that this isn't, this isn't a position between the other two groups. It's actually a crucial step beyond, uh, beyond the Make America Lament position. So having, having lamented America's past, having looked at it and really tried to see what went wrong in American history, these Protestants go one step further and they try to say, you know, what can we use in the past in order to confront injustice in the present? Um, 
It's a crucial step beyond it. In addition to lamenting, they add a tempered and qualified appreciation of the flawed figures of America's past. And they also, like the Make America Lament position, they note how the past barges into the present constantly. And that's a, that's a negative thing, and that's also a positive thing. So the good in America's past barges into the present and helps us to confront uh, uh, injustices. And also the negative things in America's past barge into the present. Um, and our, the news this last summer has been full of those, those accounts. Um, so if the Make America Great Again Protestants have a hard time articulating what went wrong in American history, Make America Lament Protestants have a hard time articulating what went right. And I argue that the Make America Better Protestants frame the critique of historical justice as an act of patriotism. So it is, it's actually patriotic to remove the plaster that previous generations put over historical evil. Hmm. And I think that's really important, this framing that they do. Uh, critiquing the nation for these Protestants is not a sign of disloyalty, but of national maturity. So America has come of age when it can squarely face its past. Matt, who might be some um, some of the models and leaders of this particular group who are who are moving to this, as you say, critical step beyond Make America Lament and into Make America Better? Yeah, in many ways, this is the most diverse group. And, and I tend to think that the majority of American Protestants could happily reside here. Um, they're being told that they have to choose between the other two polarized positions. But I think that there's actually a very large middle group that wants to, wants to confront America's past, wants to look at the past and see how it impacts the present. But they're being told that they have to take an imbalanced position on either side. So in, in this category, I looked at the works of David and Moore, Van Jones, Jim Wallace, Eric Mason, John Fee, and Marilyn Robinson. So Matt, you've given this study that shows three different ways that Protestant Christians in America really differently read history. What are the lessons that we can take from this for approaches to history that you find to be most fruitful and faithful? So a few of the things, the, the first you could put in terms of um, historical awareness, and then the, the second category I'd put in terms of temperament. I think, I think that Americans in general, Protestants, Protestant Americans in particular, really need to learn our history better. And one of the big things that I see that is dividing Americans is the fact that there is a hundred year memory gap. Um, basically from the Emancipation Proclamation to the Montgomery bus boycott, many Americans have no idea what happened there hmm. in that hundred years. Um, of course, they can name key events that were central to white history. So they can, you know, World War One, World War II, other, other events like that. They know the, these major events that happened, but they don't really know the history of, uh, they don't know Native American history during that time period. They don't know what was happening to the, to the freed slaves. And so what I argue in the book is that there's, there's this hundred year memory gap that um, basically connects slavery with, with the civil rights movement. 
And so it almost seems as if the civil rights movement and many people's thinking pops out of nowhere, hmm. but it, it has, it has a very long history. And often it's in that hundred year period that whites and many whites in America tried to reduce people of color to uh, back to their position of slavery, often under different terms. And that's a history of mass incarceration. That's a history of inequality une- in, in a in hundred different ways. And so Americans really need to learn to confess this past and say, you know, this past happened, but they also need to learn to connect the dots, connecting the dots between past injustice and the present. Um, so confessing America's past, connecting the dots, those are two historical things that I think need to happen. And and the the uh, t- the things related to temperament, I, w- I would put three, and those are curiosity, empathy, and self-critique. And very briefly on those, I think Americans I, need to become more curious about their fellow Americans. Half the country votes differently than you. And I see it, almost a total lack of curiosity as to why your neighbor thinks differently than you do. Um, often it's put in, put in terms of, you know, evil or deluded. <laughs> and those just are not satisfactory answers. Um, you might not find that you agree with somebody, but I think there should be more curiosity as to, as to why your beliefs are not shared by everybody. Uh, we've already talked about empathy, reframing empathy as the start of critique and empathy as something that sharpens critique. Um, empathy should not be viewed as disloyalty, but as um, as a very useful tool in bridging polarization and offering accurate critique. And the third thing is, I think I think the self critique needs to be reframed as a virtue. So we need more Republicans who are willing to critique Republicans. We need more Democrats willing to critique Democrats, more atheists willing to critique atheists, more Christians willing to critique Christianity. And I think that if if we reframe self-critique as a positive thing, reframe it as something that is vital to the health of any movement, um, then we, we won't have these polarized positions where one side says it's all good and the other side says it's all bad. Um, and often the best critiques are the ones that come from within any given tradition. And so I think Americans need to be more curious. We need more empathy and we need, uh, we need to reframe self critique as a positive good. Wonderful, Matt. It's really helpful. Well, you've been so generous with your time with us today before we had say goodbye. Could you tell us a little bit about what we're working on next? Yes, I have several projects that I'm working on. So the main one is a reader in Protestant political thought. This will be a two-volume global history, and it's collecting sources from around the world and looking, these are sources on war, on toleration, on slavery, on emancipation, on uh, freedom of spree- speech, freedom of inquiry, women's rights to vote, uh, uh, women's rights to hold office. All of these debates took place within, uh, with, within Protestant spheres. Protestants played an important role in them. And it's really highlighting both the prominent voices like, like John Locke or Roger Williams, but also a lot of the forgotten voices, uh, particularly uh, 
uh, Protestant political theorists who were minorities or women. Um, voices like Arjula von Grumbach, who uh, wrote a treatise on academic freedom. I think it came out in 1523, and she was one of the most widely read Protestants of her day, but is almost unheard of at the present. Um, so it's it's really trying to recover a lot of these voices and finding that in Protestant, in, in just about every debate in Protestant uh, history, um, people have lined up on exact opposite sides. And so you'll have sources that think toleration should not exist and other sources that say that uh, Christ demands toleration or uh, pro-slavery, anti-slavery. It's just, it's trying to provide a one-stop shop for the good, the bad, and the ugly in in how Protestants uh, related politics with their faith. Um, Excellent. So working on that, I'm about to finish a, an edited volume on the relationship between miracles, political authority, and violence. And uh, that one's mainly focusing on the medieval and early modern world. But um, in reality, it stretches from the ancient Near East all the way up to the siege on the Capitol on January 6th. Um, There was an enormous amount of miraculous language in the two months leading up to, uh, to opposition to Joe Biden and the, and the siege on the Capitol. So I'm, I'm giving a 5,000 year overview of the relationship between miracles and, and violence. Um, and that'll be coming out maybe at the end of this year with Routledge. Okay. And, uh, and then I'm doing some work at the university of Leicester way down on, on the, the ladder of importance on, on William Wilberforce's diaries. So those are being prepared for an Oxford mm-hmm. university press edition. Fantastic. Those all sound like very fruitful projects, and I can't wait to follow the work as you continue to to develop it. Well, once again, we've been talking to Dr. Matthew Rowley, author of the new book, Trump and the Protestant Reaction to Make America Great Again, available now from Routledge. I hope you give it a read. I trust you will find it offers much needed clarity into our current state of religion and politics in America. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt. Thank you. And thank you for listening to New Books and Christian Studies. Follow our podcast wherever you like to listen and visit newbooksnetwork.com to find more great interviews. Tell your friends if you enjoy this episode. And until next time, I hope you have a great day.